Um, as uh, Lauren introduced to us, uh, we're working through over the next, this week and the next two after this, so last week, four weeks total, uh, a series that we've called Frequently Asked Questions. These are questions that our culture is asking. And uh, our culture is not unique in asking these questions. Uh, they are questions that I think are common to the human experience. Uh, and so if you go back through history and if you go across the world at the current time, you will find cultures asking these questions. And the questions are explored, maybe not necessarily around the barbecue, uh, although maybe you do get deep and meaningful at that time. But if you look in the media, if you read the books, if you hear the public discussion and you look for the patterns, you will see these questions come up again and again and again. Last week, we looked at the question of personal identity. Actually, who are we as people and what does it mean to live out of that identity? And hopefully, I showed to you uh, God's answer to that and tried to convince you that God's answer was better than the answers that the culture is coming up to, coming up with. Today, we are looking at the question of uh, how can we live a good life? It's a question of morality. No one, I imagine here, uh, wants to go out and say, I want to live a total, uh, a life of, of anarchy and chaos, an evil life, a life uh, that brings others down. I think most of us have a desire to live a good life. But this this is nothing new under the sun, particularly. So about 3,000 years ago, a guy by the name of uh, the teacher, uh, Cahelet, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is in the Old Testament, uh, he wrote these words. He says, Who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. He had a pretty bleak look on life, uh, but... Who knows what is good? What does it mean to live a good life? Now, this morning, uh, I've got three points. You'll see them on the outline. What is a good life? Two maps to the good life and a third way. So let's dive in. What is a good life? Now, I would suggest that we could walk around this morning and talk to each and every one of you and I reckon if we did a little bit of digging, we would all have an opinion on this one. Uh, you may not be able to uh, articulate it straight up front, but I think we all have a, a vision of what a good life actually looks like. We all have something that we are working towards. One of my uh, famous, famous favourite Christian writers, a guy called James Smith, uh, he says this, he says, the longings of the heart both point us in the direction of a kingdom. When he's talking about kingdom, he's talking about this good thing. The longings of the heart, they point us towards that thing and they propel us towards that thing. It's kind of like, uh, to, to continue our bushwalking theme, it's kind of like what true mag or what magnetic north does to a compass. Okay, we have a vision that's our magnetic north, our vision of the good. And our hearts are like compasses. They orient our lives around that vision. Whether it's a conscious thing, 
whether you sit down with your journal and you write it out, whether it's an unconscious thing, you know, you picked it up from our society, you picked it up from your family, you pick it up from your friends, from the stuff you've read and studied, wherever it is, you have that opinion, you have that vision, that north, and your heart orients your life around that north, whatever it is, whatever it is. And that determines, that determines our choices. Because you have an ultimate vision of what is good, you will work towards that. So it determines our choices. But if you're anything like me, you're fickle. Your heart is maybe not as set on something as clearly as it might be. And so today it's set on one thing and tomorrow it's another thing. And yesterday it was something entirely different. Sometimes our vision, it goes away from the big good and we get caught up in little goods. I don't know if ever you played around with magnets and compasses as a kid. Did you ever do this? Okay, and you get your magnet and you can actually turn. If you bring the magnet close enough to the compass, it loses north and you can turn it around. And it's the same thing. We, we take the little goods and we surround ourselves with magnets. So we feel our heart kind of is jumping all over the place and we lack that direction. But that's not the way we are meant to be. We are meant to have a good. We're meant to be striving for the good life. So what, do, what is that? What would that look like? How would you define that? Now, again... I recognise that I'm talking to a whole group of people who've decided that 10am on a beautiful sunny day, you're going to come and sit in a church service, in a school auditorium. Uh, I've got a certain kind of people here. But even amongst you, there's going to be different opinions. And if we go out into the, in our, our society, we walk along the beach, we go to the cafes, we're going to get different opinions. And I imagine that it'd be pretty hard to lock down a definitive definition. But I want to go and take one that King David actually came up with uh, in Psalm 25. He defines, and you may not have spotted it, but let let me share it with you anyway. He defines the good life as one that means you will never be put to shame. One that means you will never be put to shame. One that you have nothing to regret. Before whom? Well, we can argue about that. For some, the one before whom we are not to be put to shame is ourselves. For others, it's our family or our extended family or our community group, our friendships. For others... It might be God. But I think that we can define a good life as one that means we will never be put to shame. And in Psalm 25, you saw that that was David's prayer, that he would not be put put to shame. So if that's a good life, what are the maps? Let's dive in. Now, last week, I talked about Uh, identity in terms of the ancient and the modern. We're going to flip it around today. We're going to talk about the modern first and we're going to talk about the ancient. Now, uh, 
we need a little bit technical, but hopefully not too technical. Uh, so just, you can tune in and tune out. Maybe talk to Daniel and Claire and get one of the, the youth sheets. Uh, that could help you follow along, perhaps. Uh, but hopefully you can follow me. But if there are questions that you have afterwards, come and grab me, and, and I'd love to go. You know, if you know me, I, I have no problem talking to anyone uh, and talking about this kind of stuff. You'll be here at 5 o'clock. Uh, if you choose to be, of course. If you'd like to go. What's the modern answer? What is the modern roadmap to the good life? Well, uh, not that long ago in Western civilization. When I'm talking Western, European, North American, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, okay, not talking so much China or the Middle East or Africa, talking uh, Western civilization. Uh, we saw the rise of a bunch of philosophers. Uh, I'm sure you've read them all. Uh, postmodern philosophers. You've at least heard the term postmodern, yes? Okay. The modern age was characterized by certainty. The postmoderns basically came uh, like, uh, you know, you've, you've seen your little uh, son or daughter build a tower, and then you see uh, their brother or sister come in and kick it down. Uh, the postmoderns basically did that to modernity, okay? They came in and they pulled it apart. Where the modern way of seeing things, and when I'm saying modern, I'm saying philosophically modern, said there is certainty, we can know things, there are absolutes. The postmoderns came in and said, no, there's not. We can't know anything. We, everything is a matter of opinion. There is no objective truth, Anything that we see as objective is either a figment of our imagination, we're fooling ourselves, or we are actually making a power play and trying to control others. Okay, so they went out there and they said, everything is relative. And once you make truth relative, morality follows. And so there is no right and wrong. And anyone who comes in, and says, this is right, and this is wrong, is making a power play, okay? And a power play, the postmodern philosophers will tell us, needs to be rejected. We need to stand up against these things. So if you're going to find the good life, if you're going to find the map that is going to lead you to a life with no shame, the postmoderns will tell you, and the modern Western society, they'll tell you, you've got to search inside yourself. That's where you find it. That's where you find right and wrong. There is nothing outside you that tells you this is right and this is wrong. So you get people saying things like, it was right for me. Okay, for an older mindset, we kind of go, how can it be right for you and wrong for me? It's either right or wrong. But to a younger mindset, you kind of go, I don't see the contradiction. You see how this works? It's really quite unusual. Um, what is the criteria you use to work it out? So as you're searching inside, it seems to be that the criteria is you must do whatever will bring you the most happiness. That is what is right. To pursue your own personal happiness in the way that you see fit is right. And to not do that is wrong. Now, 
it sounds like a bit of a free-for-all, but there are some rules. So let me introduce you to the rules. Rule number one is that you do no harm to another individual. Okay? So it's right. Do whatever you want to do as long as no one else is being harmed. You've probably heard that being said. Rule number two is you don't judge. You have no right to actually judge another's opinion. You come across this as well? Okay? Uh, People are paranoid. They're so incredibly judgmental about that particular rule. If they think that you're being judgmental, the the, the, the stuff that is heaped upon you, they don't see the irony of that, which I found quite funny, actually. But um, two rules. So one principle, do what will make you feel, you feel will bring you the most happiness. But if you're doing that, you don't do that in a way that harms another individual. Note that I'm stressing individual. And you don't do it while condemning someone else's choice. Let me tell you why I don't think this works. Okay, number one is those rules are absolute statements. They're objectives. They are out there and they are being forced upon us. So to apply postmodern theory, we are to reject them out of court. You, you can't tell me what to do. That's, that's a power play that you are making. When you're telling me that I can't judge, you're making a power play. So I need to reject that. Okay, that's number one. Number two they have a massively individualistic view of harm. So when they say we shall not harm another individual, when you talk to people, and I've read books about this where people have been interviewed, and they say it's, it's fine to shoplift, it's okay to rip off the government in your taxation, but what they don't see is that as you do that, individuals are harmed. And so let me give you an example. Uh, I've talked about tax fraud. Okay, there's tax fraud. If you don't pay tax, I have to pay more. Okay? So even though you think you're ripping off the government, which is an impersonal institution, individuals are harmed. Or maybe our society doesn't have the, 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 the infrastructure, it doesn't have the services that we need because you are ripping off an impersonal institution. So as I said... The view, of self or the view of harm is very limited. The next one, another illustration, um, drug use. The postmodern will tell you, if you want to do it, do it. As long as you're not harming anyone else. But think about it. To use drugs considered by our society as illegal is to provide a market for a crime that actually then ripples out within our society. And so we create a society where there is a market for people to create illicit drugs and everything that goes with that. So to say it's just about my personal choice of what I put into my veins or what I inhale into my lungs actually doesn't work. And when you end up needing medical attention or long-term care, your family your friends, the society as a whole, picks up the tab. A massively individualistic view of harm. That's number two. Number three, that if you actually follow the logic of this, you cannot make any moral judgments. Okay? 
You can make nothing. You can't say anything's right and wrong, which for me being slightly older, now in my late 30s, um, <laughs> I find baffling. But I read this interview with a, uh, a young adult in the States. She's asked about right and wrong. I, know, I don't know that people like terrorists, you know, what they do. It's not wrong to them, okay? Get that phrase. It's not wrong to them. They're doing the ultimate good. They're just like doing the thing that they think is the best thing they could possibly do, and so they're doing good. I had this discussion with a, it's meant to be a friend, not a fried, uh, recently, and she's like, but they're still murdering tons of people, and that just has to be wrong. And I was like, do we have any idea if it's actually wrong to murder tons of people? Like, for me as a slightly older person, I am just floored by this. What do you mean? What do you mean? Is it actually wrong to murder tons of people? But she is following the logic of the argument perfectly. If it's entirely what you feel is going to bring you the most happiness, and that is going to be strapping on a bomb vest and blowing up a church in Indonesia, so be it. Okay? There's some other flaws there. But you can't make judgments. And the funny thing is, it just doesn't work. Okay? All I need to say is this girl needs to have a friend or a family member in that church when that bomb goes off, and I guarantee she will not say that. She will say, this is wrong. The moral outrage that we have. Think about, during the week, uh, the Saudi asylum seeker. Uh, The conversations about this, but if you applied this postmodern reasoning, we're actually saying... What's our version of good? Why does it trump their version of good? Okay, they're saying the shame that this girl is bringing to our nation, to our clan, to our family, means that she should be put to death. That's what's been claimed. Why is that less valid than her claim or our claim? But all of a sudden, we have a society that is making very big judgments about Saudi culture and families and so forth. And To tell you the truth, I agree with most of it. I think it's abhorrent what she would have been sent back to. Uh, But I don't operate under a post-modern moral grid. Uh, It doesn't work, especially when we are the ones on the receiving end. Can I say that? So if if the modern Western view is falling apart, okay, if it's inconsistent, maybe the traditional's got it right. Okay, let me explore maybe what's some more familiar territory for some of us. What is the traditional view? Well, there are moral rules that are imposed externally by society, by government, by our culture, by our family, by our religion. Okay, you might have grown up in a culture where the rights and wrongs were tightly prescribed. Uh, I can remember growing up in my family where we were told our family does this. Maybe you heard the same things. Okay, there are rules that are imposed and the right is found, the good is found by falling in line with the rules. Okay, there was a a guy back in the 1700s by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, He's probably one of the greatest North American uh, theologian philosopher types 
uh, I, I would say ever, astounding intellect. And he spoke about this. And as he looked at this traditional system that he was very much a part of, he said, there is a common morality that is out there. He wasn't totally negative about it, but he recognised its shortcomings. And it has both religious and secular forms. Okay, but the motivations underlying it are the same. One is fear. I will do the right thing, secular form, because if I don't, the policeman will come and take me away and lock me up. Or I will suffer social sanction at the hands of my community. I will do the right thing because I'm afraid of the consequences. Okay? I obey, otherwise I'll be punished. The religious form, you just take out the government and you put in God. Okay? God will get me. God will curse me. I will face judgment and go to hell. So therefore, I bet to obey the rules. Okay? That's one motivation. What's the other one? Well, the other one's pride. Okay? You want to obey the rules because you don't want to be like, you know, those people over there that sit on that side of the auditorium. You guys, look at them. You don't want to be like them. Okay? Those dirty sinners over there. You want to keep the rules over here, okay, that says you'll sit on the right-hand side of the auditorium, okay? You didn't know about those rules, but they're looking down on you now, and they're feeling pretty good about themselves, okay? They're proud, okay? And so you have the secular form, just that snobbery. You have the religious form. Thank God that I am not like other people, especially that tax collector. You see it there in Scripture. Okay, pride and fear. Can I say, if you grew up in this, you probably didn't love it and you recognise its issues. One of the issues is, if you can get away with it, you will. If you honestly think you can get off without anyone notice, harder with the religious form, okay, God does notice, uh, but in the secular form, you'll do it. And so I dug this one up. What percentage of men would cheat on their spouse if they knew they'd never get caught? The fear of getting caught red-handed is a pretty strong deterrent for most people, but 74% said they'd step out on their partners if they knew they were able to get away. Ladies, before you feel good about it, surprisingly, 68% of you said they'd greenlight an affair if there was no chance of the current partner finding out. This was a hypothetical that was put to people. Uh, guaranteeing your spouse will never know. Three-quarters of men and just under three-quarters of women said... Yeah, if I didn't get caught, I'd do it. Okay, it doesn't work. Okay, number two critique, it's pretty harsh. Maybe you've grown up in this kind of situation. Uh, there's, there, was a, there was a book or a play written called The Scarlet Letter. Is anyone familiar with The Scarlet Letter? About a woman uh, who committed adultery in a small community and she basically was forced to walk around with an A adulterous around her neck and I understand a little drummer boy uh, used to follow around just just um, imagine that when you don't meet the rules it is harsh and condemning if you people on this side were honestly feeling better because you're sitting on this side and looking down on them they're feeling condemned you're it's horrible it's horrible it shames people it tears them down Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says, 
morality can be a fearsome thing in the hand of a religious believer. Uh, Yes. Yes. This is where Puritans get their bad name from. And the postmoderns, I think, third critique, were right. It is so often a power play, this kind of morality, this kind of dictating actions, so much it's keeping certain people in their place, often minorities, often women, often children, and maintaining the status quo. And the last thing is it doesn't actually change the heart. It just puts evil on a leash. So what options do we have? Because Matthew chapter 12 that we heard says this. It says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree will be recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. A good man or a good woman brings good things out of the good stored up in them. And an evil man, evil woman, brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. Jesus' view, and I think he's right, uh, the heart is the source of our actions. As we orient ourselves around the good, from the heart, we act. The modern view says, follow your heart. That's a problem. The traditional view says, put a leash on it, obey the rules, but neither of them actually work. Is there another way? Jesus said, to have good fruit, you actually need to have a good tree. I don't know if you, uh, you garden. I, I do a bit of gardening. I have trouble making a bad tree good. Has anyone ever been able to do that or making a good tree bad? Uh, some trees seem to flourish and some trees seem to die. And I seem to have very little to actually do with that. Um, sometimes I neglect them and I make them die. But anyway, uh, Jesus is talking about a transformation a transformation of the heart. And this is why Christianity, this is why biblical faith is not the traditional moralism that I was just talking about. And Psalm 25 actually explores this. So we're going to dive into the third way and go back to Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards contrasted common virtue with its two key motivations, which are... Pride and fear. fear. Very good. Okay, you are paying attention. You're still with me. That's good. With the common morality with true virtue. One, you have to obey the rules. True virtue, he argued, you want to obey. You want to seek the good because the good in itself is beautiful. The good in itself is desirable. It's not that if I don't do that, I'm going to get smacked. It's that you want to do it. You love to do it. What wouldn't you give for this? And this common, this this true virtue, it actually deals with the heart. It addresses those two motivations, the fear and the pride, and it gives the other motivation, that of gratitude, of wonder, of love, of awe. Not because you're afraid, not because you're trying to build yourself up so you can look down on others, but because the good that your life is oriented around is so compelling. Remember when you first fell in love? I'm sure most of you have had this experience. 
what wouldn't you do for that person? How much money? You don't go and say, oh, well, my wife, what's she worth for a birthday present? If you truly love her, you buy her the present that you think most reflects that. Your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends. If you truly love them, what wouldn't you do for them? You don't sit there and go, how much do I have to? How much do I have to is the old way. But this true virtue motivated by love. David speaks of it and he puts it out there before us. He speaks of its objective nature. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. And my hope is in you all day long. David recognises that he doesn't find the truth inside himself. But neither does he go to his culture. Neither does he go to his society. Neither does he go to his clan, his people group. He goes to God and he says, you are the one who shows me the way. You are the one who teaches me the path. You are the one who guides me. David knows, if you know David's history, adultery, murder, he knows just how fickle the human heart is. He recognises that wisdom for life, the true good is found in the wisdom of our changeless maker. It is objective. It is also beautiful. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. What's he saying? Look at the the first line, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs us. Because God is a good and upright God, He gives us his word, not to shackle us, not to enslave us, but to bless us because it in itself is an expression of his loving kindness. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. The word that lies behind that loving and faithful is the word that covers his covenant faithfulness, the fact that he has bound himself to us. His love His beauty is shown in the word that he gives us. Not a distant lawmaker, but a loving father who comes down and shows us the way. It is objective, it is beautiful. Verse 11, if it is gracious. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. This is the heart of the difference. This is why what I'm not talking about is the religious form of the traditional morality that says, if you don't obey the rules, God will get you. And if you do, God will reward you and you can look down on everyone else who doesn't. No. David knows that he needs forgiveness. This is not the only verse in the psalm and scripture is clear about David's failures. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. David knows that God provides sacrifice for forgiveness. For us, we know that even more fully. 
that the Lord Jesus was that sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice that means that no other sacrifice needs ever to be offered. And in this, those two great motivations of common morality, fear and pride, are answered. Fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is it that condemns? It is Christ that justifies. Who is it that condemns? If you know Romans 8, the next line is, no one. You don't need to fear. You don't need to be ashamed because forgiveness is found in Christ. And so therefore, I don't need to obey out of the fear that God is going to get me if I don't. I am freed to obey because his forgiveness is mine. Christ has dealt with the fear, but he's also dealt with the pride because I know that no matter how low anyone else sinks and no matter how good I think I am, that person and I are the same. Sinners needing a saviour. So I have no grounds to look down on them. I have no foundation to look at them and say, I'm better than you. Pride is dealt with before the cross we are humbled. It is objective. It is beautiful. It is gracious. It is effective. Verses 12 and 13. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the way they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. Now we've got to be careful with this. Otherwise it sounds a bit like I'm preaching a prosperity gospel. Uh, I'm telling you that if you obey, God will give you lots of stuff. In the Old Testament, Israel's obedience and the blessing within the land of Canaan were tied closely together. Okay, When they obeyed, they were blessed. When they disobeyed, the rains didn't come, the crops didn't come and all that kind of stuff. But for us, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing and it's crowned by the fact that if your faith is in Christ, we are sons and daughters of his and nothing can trump that. Nothing can trump that. But what here David is teaching us is actually the path of obedience is a path of blessing because it is our father who blesses us. And what you can, what you can take from this is that that path that path that you follow out of love and devotion for God will always be the best path. The promise is not there that you'll end up with more houses and a bigger bank account and da-da-da-da-da. No, prosperity gospel, totally, totally wrong. What the promise is, is that God will show his blessings to you again and again and again until he finally welcomes you home. It is effective and lastly, it is liberating. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. David here is speaking about the enemies that are trying to entrap him, but also about the personal sin that he is confessing. I would add that we could also add in the snare of the culture that binds us to a pattern of traditional or modern morality that ensnares us 
where God's way shows us the best way. It gives us the power to live a good life. Why? Because that good is not a set of rules. Ultimately, that good is a person. That good is a person who loved us, who gave himself for us, who died and rose again as the ultimate good, the ultimate beauty that orients our heart and so our life. That good is the Lord Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life and offers the invitation that through him we can come to the Father. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know where we stand. You know what we are trying to do, the lives that, the lives that we are trying to live before you. Father, whether we have embraced the old way of rules with the traps that come of pride and fear or the more modern way of just choosing our own way with all the inconsistencies that that brings. Father, help us to see just how wrong and how empty those things are and that the good is found only in you because you are the good and you teach us what is good. Father, we do pray that you'd show us your grace, show us the wonder of obedience, and by your Spirit work in us that we might live lives in gratitude to you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.